morningcomrade.com uh, check out our website uh, follow us on Facebook Twitter uh, at Comrade Morning uh, follow me on uh, Twitter at uh, Eminent Prof uh, just Jeff today with uh, Connor Lewis how you doing today Connor I'm doing pretty well how are you Jeff doing okay so uh, Connor is uh, he works in uh, organizing uh, he organizes teachers and he also uh, works with uh, Stripewave. Is that like a? I mean, how do you? What do you do? Uh, identify yourself as like a newsletter or um, something? I, I mean, I, I I read it. I read it, but I, I I don't know how you sort of like view yourself, like a, like an online magazine or a newsletter. Uh, it started out as a newsletter, but has kind of turned into an online. Uh, like a magazine, online or journal, magazine. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe think of ourselves as the goop of the. The labor movement, whole, whole <laughs> lifestyle brand, right? The goop, the life, yeah, just branding, and and uh, anyway, yeah, we just Connor and I have been talking for a little while. Um, you know, what, when, how long we've been sort of friends? A couple of months, huh? Yeah, a couple of months now. Yeah, yeah. And, and we just figured it'd be good to have him come on the show. So, uh, what's going on? You surviving uh, COVID nineteen? Okay, up there, doing all right. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been a lot of. Uh, Morning commute is basically just like everyone else been uh, between bed and the uh, kitchen table. Right, so, we're a lot of bed. Um, yeah, um, but actually, it's you know it's been uh, it's been pretty good. You know, I I live in central Pennsylvania in State College, and so there's um, a lot of places you can go for walks, go on hikes. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been really interesting to actually get out and see so many people on no matter what time of day you go out somewhere, mm-hmm. there's tons of people out. They're all friendly. They just seem happy to see another person. Right. I mean, humans, um, you know? <laughs> yeah. Like, I don't know. It just, it seems like, um, at least where I'm at, the, just the level of social solidarity, I guess, is mm-hmm. really something. I mean, I've really? never seen anything like it. Yeah. You've seen examples of it? Like, can you, can you maybe reel off a few of, of ones that you've seen of people sort of like sticking in it together? You know, I've um, both, you know, anecdotally as well as there there are some local projects that are focusing on kind of mutual aid uh, mm. to support oh, yeah, people that, that are affected by this. But, um, you know, I just know that a lot of, you know, friends, acquaintances, family, you've got folks that are, you know, just pitching in in small ways to mm-hmm. make sure that each other can get, uh, you know, people can get through this, mm-hmm. uh, whether it's just checking in with friends and family, seeing how they're doing, see if they need anything, um, you know, picking up stuff for folks that, you know, are high risk that can't go out to the grocery store. For sure. Um, and just, you know, I, I've noticed that even just in the very small interactions, when you got in public, people are being pretty um, respectful of, you know, of space, very 
you know distancing some of it yeah. and when when people don't do it it's weird like like that's yeah. what like it's sort of viewed socially as kind of like a like a faux pas now to get too close to somebody else right yeah i mean it makes me wonder it's gonna be weird when you know like when, when all this side. is over yeah uh-huh. it's gonna be strange um it already seems kind of so ingrained right now that you know a couple more months of this or you know god knows how long um, it's going to be strange coming out of the other side. It yeah. really is. I, I keep thinking about what, because right now, like even my, I'm a teacher, right? My work is a lot of phone calls and a lot of Zoom calls. And a lot of my social life is a lot of phone calls and a lot of Zoom calls. And I'm almost sort of um, kind of curious as to what it's going to look like on the other side of it. Because I don't see, especially the work part, I don't see like once this new tool, I suppose you could call it, get like introduced and almost like proliferates because it's a necessary thing to make the job happen. Like, I don't think it's going away. And I think that, you know, for better, probably, you know, for better or for worse, let's just put it that way. You know, a lot more of work is going to be like less in person and more remote just because of this, the way like this having happened. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like I, the union I work for um, Mm -hmm. covers the entirety of Pennsylvania, which is a pretty, obviously a pretty big state. Um, And, you know, you would think that we would utilize, you know, video conferencing stuff pretty frequently for meetings, but we don't. And this Mm -hmm. has been a totally different, you know, way of doing things, uh, for us. And, um, you know, I think that for us and for a lot of other folks, this is going to be, there, there are definitely going to be changes, um, back to close to normal, but Mm -hmm. I think that some things about what we're experiencing right now are going to stay the same. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think definitely. And like, I don't know, it's almost in a sense, I don't want to like sound too like head up my own ass about this because I think about it all the time because what else I got to do uh, when I'm not like you know calling down actually I had a long conversation with a member I'll tell you about in a little bit Uh, not like specifics but like uh, but anyway um, the the way that this is sort of like a shift towards technology and then there's sort of an entire generation of people you know millennials or whatever and to a lesser extent perhaps generation x that are more experienced with that technology uh there's gonna be sort of uh i think like a generational flaking uh from that if it does kind of catch hold you know what i'm saying like 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 boomers and maybe some of the early gen x types might start retiring when they can if they can and just because of the nature and transition of the way things have gone from the way they've done them for their entire careers, not to be like, you know, I'm not trying to like talk trash about boomers or, you know, generation people. I'm just saying that, that, that it would be harder to adjust to something like that for them, especially the, 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 the less experience you have with it than people who have grown up with this kind of, these kinds of technology and, you know, Skype with people from the beginning. Yeah. You know, a friend of mine, um, actually another person that works um, works on StrikeWave with me, uh, also works in um, IT in the University of California system. And he said that, you know, for the, for the first couple of weeks of, you know, them moving to canceling in-person classes and moving entirely to online education, 
99% of the calls he was getting were from, you know, faculty over 60 that were yeah. just needed help figuring out how to utilize, you know, Zoom and stuff like that. Yeah. Which, you know, isn't to knock against them. Um, but at the same time, they're, it definitely does present a challenge to people that might not have, you know, as much fluency mm -hmm. um, in this kind of technology. Right. Um, yeah. At the very least, it's going to be more difficult for the people that, that, that are transitioning and that have less life experience with those kinds of things. Right. Right. I mean, it's, it's not a new story. I think when you look at work and just the way that work has changed over, yeah, you true. know, I mean, it's people get skilled out of the workforce and people that might have more familiarity with, you know, things that are um, new or, what have you um yeah i mean it's not a new story mm -hmm. so, yeah i i guess i suppose it's more like an acceleration point for that like the, that like that would sort of be a catalyst for that kind of transition but maybe i'm maybe i'm uh maybe i'm doing so i have an idea like a, like a theory almost it's, it's so you know how it's like like horseshoe theory and fish hook theory yeah yeah this is like head ass theory uh, where if you sort of like think about something for so long and you sort of like bend over backwards so far that the next thing you know, you end up with your head up your own ass. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, it feels like uh, basically all of my trying to figure out what the world's going to look like in six months has basically ended there. Yeah. I mean, it's, <laughs> I, it inevitably leads in that direction. <laughs> So now we need to develop, since we have this theory and we're, we're, we're rooting it, we need to develop like a second and third order impact of head-ass theory <laughs> <laughs> to be real nerds uh, about it and then just make yeah. head-ass theory into like a, a never-ending perpetuation of itself. Oh my God. Uh, <laughs> this is what quarantine has done to yeah, us. Yeah, my <laughs> brain is so broken. When every right. second I'm not playing Animal Crossing, this is what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> You know, it, it is funny that you have, I think a lot of people have, I mean, life just on a day-to-day -day basis, and for a lot of people, it still is, um, whether or not they're, you know, categorized as essential workers, or mm -hmm. they just have dick bosses that are making them work regardless, or whatever it may be, um, you know the pace of life I think for a lot of people has slowed down to the point where, I mean, the pace of the pace of modern society doesn't really allow a lot of time for introspection and for thinking right. and just, you know, and by necessity, a lot of people are left with nothing else to do. Yeah, it's just me but, and my voices <laughs> in my head. <laughs> yeah. Which I mean, for some people is a really uncomfortable experience. Yeah, you're talking to one. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think that, um, it's interesting, mm -hmm. you know, um, you basically, you, you take a crisis, um, that's exacerbated by a shredded social safety net mm -hmm. and then put a bunch of people indoors where they have nothing time, uh, nothing but time to think about what's uh -huh. going on. Um, hopefully they'll come to some good conclusions about it. I right. don't know. <laughs> and hopefully they don't like end up hating the poor bastards that they're stuck quarantined with. You know? <laughs> right. Right. Oh, I saw something, um, I saw that there was like a massive spike in divorce rates in China yeah. after, right after the quarantine ended, which, yeah, I mean, I, I, I could definitely see it. You know who told you know. me about that? Oh, who was it? My wife. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, that's not a good sign, man. No, that was before the whole thing. Yeah. Just sort of like a prep for it. So I guess it was yeah. sort of a, a way to kind of get out in front of it 
sort of sort of situation, but it's sort of really fu- really funny. And and I was talking a little bit about this. I, I think we talked about this with Diana on the episode we recorded with her. But we also had a, a situation where um, one of the, our cats, uh, Phoebe, for long time GMC heads, uh, she escaped uh, the house during this crisis. And uh, like while that had happened, I had discovered that felines could potentially transport, like transfer coronavirus. Yeah, and I'm just yeah. like, oh my God. <laughs> you know, <laughs> one of those weird things. Oh gosh. Yeah. You've brought a, a vector back into your house. Yeah. This little cat needs to be quarantined by herself. <laughs> this, little t- <laughs> this little tiny five month old kitty. And the other, the other sort of thing that we're thinking uh, is that, that she's probably, she might be pregnant because she's barely over the period where she could. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Kittens. So I, uh, I was telling you before, we, we have people already sort of claiming kittens before we even know she's actually pregnant. <laughs> I mean, some of those people might end up getting pretty disappointed. I mean, <laughs> that's fine. I mean, again, that might be more head ass theory. Yeah. Well, you know, I think a lot of one interesting thing, um, you know, until recently, um, the local animal shelter um, here in State College was still operating. Um, they moved it down to just staff, but mm-hmm. they, you know, they have a pretty large volunteer contingent. You know, my wife and I, um, go and volunteer usually on a weekly basis. Um, the, the rates at which people have just been, I mean, this is a little bit, you know, off on the side, but, um, the rates at which people have been, you know, offering to foster cats or, you know, adopt cats or foster, you know, dogs or what have you. I mean, it's really kind of, I mean, it makes sense for a lot of people right. that are, you know, trapped at home. This is not a bad time to have something, mm-hmm. you know, a new furry little friend in your life. You get some company if you're by yourself, yeah. especially. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's a good, I mean, if you're, if you're adopting an animal, it's not a bad time to do it because you're actually going to be home to, you know, bond with the animal and help them adjust. Mm-hmm. So I, I already know that our dog, um, who is very much a spoiled princess, um she is going to she's get she's gonna go on strike as soon as we actually have to go back to work yeah she's gonna be so peeing everywhere yeah um no no she doesn't do that but she does like she can get into garbage cans that like are designed specifically to be impervious to dogs <laughs> she's like a reverse houdini yeah like the thing <laughs> is she doesn't know how to open a door that's like a jar and not like actually latched like she doesn't know that she can open it yeah you can use but, your nose for that but no yeah but she can but she can get into like a trash can that's specifically designed to keep her yeah out. she's a raccoon so, she's basically yeah. a raccoon dog <laughs> Yeah, that's basically what she is. I mean, she's a hound, so yeah. I mean, she basically is a Aww. raccoon dog. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, it's it's just it's strange, you know, the the way that adjusting to life under quarantine mm-hmm. and how strange it's going to be adjust to or it's going to be to adjust back to like just existing in the world mm-hmm. more normally if there is going to be any such thing as normal on mm-hmm. the other end of this. Totally. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and like, it, we were having an interesting conversation on like what normal even means. 
not long ago and and, and i was definitely a, like in, in a weird spot but like what does that sort of like even because because things are always changing like constantly we just sort of don't notice them but right now things are like dramatically different than they've ever been right yeah. just in a drop of a hat and and i was i might have said this on the program before but but i'm gonna say it again the, and it sort of like get your idea on it um so like i say i'm a teacher and i've been doing um we've been they've been having us do like meetings and things like that on zoom like um stuff like that and the administration and some of the other folks are trying to like act like this coronavirus is just something that's in the way and they've already canceled school until the end of next month you know maybe not for the whole school year but they still want to have these like weekly meetings and they still want to talk about um how we can you know get them their reading or english work or their math you know getting working on their math and they, you know these things i suppose are important but but there's a very sort of sense of like this is like we're not acknowledging the realities of the situation that's happening and basically acting like everything is normal and that makes me feel like i'm so crazy and yeah. i know that i'm not but like it just sort of like doesn't take into account just like what's going on you know what I mean? Yeah. Have you noticed that? Yeah. You know, I, I think it's, I'm going to botch this, but um, <laughs> with that, with that Lenin quote that there are weeks where years happen and years where, um, anyway, yeah. you know, years the, where you know, the happen. gist of it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, um, I think that, you know, and you saw this again in the, you know, in the aftermath of uh, Donald Trump's election, um, there are points at which, history for lack of a better term accelerates mm -hmm. um you know the, you have rapid social changes or rapid you know political changes um that i think you have a certain kind of expectation that things are going to change over time but it's so incremental that there's a degree of comfort with that change it's not an uncomfortable thing mm -hmm. and discomfort with change is not necessarily a bad thing depending mm -hmm. on what the outcome is Depends but on what changes, yeah. 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 It depends on the type of change. Um, you know, there, there are un uncomfortable changes that, you know, even if you think about, you know, a person in their personal growth, there are uncomfortable changes that are probably extremely healthy and mm -hmm. no changes that are extremely unhealthy. Right. Um, yeah. The business as usual can be the problem in sorts of situations, right? Right. right. But, and, and I and, think, yeah. go ahead. No, you finish yeah. and then. And, yeah, I mean, I think that what what I'm seeing is that I think, and you can kind of see this in a certain segment of people that think that, you know, we get Donald Trump out of the White House and we're going to go back to the Obama administration. That's the whole Biden thing. That's the entire yeah. Biden thing. Yeah. Yeah. And th there's a segment of people that legitimately, for whatever reason, believe that that's a viable thing. And, you know, I know um, it was a, years ago, but there was an episode of... Uh, Chapo Trap, uh, Trap House, where, you know, they pointed out, and I thought it was a good way to put it, you can't get the ketchup stains out of the Resolute desk. Mm -hmm. I mean, right. th there is no going back to a time before Donald Trump. Right. And I think that in the same vein, there's no going back to a time before this pandemic. No. There are going History to be goes one changes. way. It's a one-way street. Right. <laughs> and, you know, I think that if you take a look realistically at what this pandemic is showing us about society... We shouldn't want to go back to normal. I mean, 
Jesus Christ, you know, just the looking at just how unemployment, you know, systems are handling all of the layoffs right now on a state level. Um, just thinking what about kind of, what's the going on with lack that? of like PPE. I mean, mm-hmm. we shouldn't want to go back to normal. Right. Yeah. Yeah. What is normal? Like, and, and again, people cling to no- what, what, what they think normal is because they, and, I'm, and I might be getting a bit postmodern here, I suppose, mm-hmm. but like people sort of like experience like the reality and they sort of choose the bits that they like the most and they call that normal. And then when when the chips are like really down or when some crazy stuff happens, they sort of like cling to that normal, like you were saying before, like that Biden idea, you know, the you know times that they were, you know, go back to the time it was before Donald Trump or whatever. And and, and there's almost like um, there's almost like a distortion on a personal level that happens sort of like across the board mm. in a sense where people kind of don't want to shake the boat because of the outlying uncertainty. I don't know. Well, and I think that, you know, normal is a, is a loaded term. Yeah. Um, and it's, it necessarily relies on a person um, in their particular, <laughs> you know, social location and their, you know, um, I mean, if you, if you think about it this way, the people that, um, that are, you know, all in on Biden that want to return to the Obama administration are people that were doing fine under the Correct. Obama administration. Their 401ks were doing well. They had their, you know, their yearly, you know, vacations with the family. They sent their kids to college without, you know, having any financial hardship. For them, that normalcy was good. Right. For, you know, who was a, a, ver- yeah. a minority of people, by the way. Right. I mean, for an undocumented, um, undocumented immigrant, their experience of living in society between, um, you know, they they were deported under the Obama administration and they're still getting deported. Right. I mean, and, you know, normalcy for, you know, a black working class, you know, uh, kid in Ferguson, Missouri is not a good thing. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I, I think that when, when you make those kind of universal claims about normalcy and whether it's a desirable thing, you're necessarily telling a little bit about your own position in society because right. normal for working class Americans, you know, pre 2016, you know, normalcy was not a good thing for working class Americans. Certainly wasn't in, you know, rural Pennsylvania where I live, where you've got town after town after town where NAFTA just ripped factories out of the towns and there's nothing left. It created the so-called Rust Belt, right? Right. I mean, yeah, I mean, normalcy, if you go like hell, you know, think about some of the counties around, um, around Pittsburgh, um, around Allegheny County that used to have a lot of steel manufacturing, um, that used to be reliable, you know, Democrat voting um, counties, and even recently voted for Obama. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, like for union them, union towns. Yeah, yeah, union towns. I mean, Cambria County is a perfect example that you know, until 2012, hadn't voted for, you know, a Republican since probably since Lincoln. I mean, <laughs> it, it had been a long. I mean. A, that may have been the last Republican that they actually, I mean, since FDR onward, it's been yeah, a very Democrat long time. After Democrat. Yeah. And they voted for Trump with like a monumental percentage of, um, 
of the you know of the vote and i think that they chose to vote they chose to go against normal didn't they right they said fuck normal yeah, yeah. which i mean we could say a lot about we could say a lot about how i mean obviously that was a ultimately reactionary choice even which sounds you know sounds strange when you're talking about people voting for a change agent when mm -hmm. they're voting for a reactionary change agent right well if they're um, not given a chance to create a ch like a change from like like essentially when and, and, and i remember in 2016 the messaging behind uh the clinton the clinton campaign just like it is for the for the joe biden oh similarly to a joe biden campaign um was she she was running on Barack Obama's third term. And for those mm -hmm. folks, Barack Obama's first and second terms were that their jobs were destroyed and their lives were upended. So mm -hmm. it's not so and if, and if they're being promised more of that, then what do you expect them to decide? You know? Yeah. I think that, you know, taking it back to education even, mm -hmm. um, I think that the experience of education uh, and educators, I think, for the past 20, 30 years um, has been a continual sh negative shift mm -hmm. in what it is to be a teacher. Yeah. Um, Very solid but, line yeah. down. Right. I mean, and realistically, for a lot of educators, and, you know, I've talked to a lot of um, educators that have, you know, been in the classroom for I've got one that's literally been in the classroom since in the early 1960s. Mm -hmm. Their experience is pretty much, you know, without interruption, a an erosion in what the teaching you, what teaching looks like in the quality of education that um, you know that they're able to deliver. Um, their experience of work and you know the level of administrative interference mm -hmm. um, or you know. Um, you know, the increase of standardized testing, like all of these different measures of what they think is right for education and their own ability to actually educate, mm -hmm. um, things have gotten worse for them. And you take a look at Barack Obama, who campaigned on, you know, absolutely bullshit charter, you know, like charter nonsense in education reform. Privatization of education. Yeah, yeah. and appointed Arne Duncan, his mm -hmm. first secretary of education, I mean, who's a Chicago guy with right. Rahm Emanuel. Yeah. So, I mean, you take a look at this and I think that, you know, the idea of continuity with um, with the Obama administration for a lot of people, that isn't necessarily um, isn't necessarily a good thing. Right. And, you know, it, it, it's interesting that you bring that up. And I don't I mean. When. Uh, uh, I don't always like want to get into this, but like when you also see the leaders of like teachers unions and like, like it happened in 2016 go and, and break for that change that, or that, that sort of status quo that's been like ripping them up for the past, you know, four and eight years or whatever. You know, how do they start to view these kind of organizations based on those kinds of decisions? You know, like when AFT uh, in 2016, and I, and if you don't want to talk about that, that's fine. Uh, but like when AFT, I'm an AFT member, 
broke for Hillary Clinton like in August of 2015 before any of the uh, election or any of the primary process had even played out, there was a lot of really ticked off members that I know dropped their membership because of that. You know, I think that, um, you know, and I, I can't comment quite as much on the 2020, but I was, you know, the 2020 uh, endorsement process, but I was a member of NEA. I work for Pennsylvania's NEA affiliate now. Mm-hmm. Um, I was a member in 2016. And mm-hmm. in fact, I had just recently joined. Uh, we were just starting an organizing campaign with the Missouri National Education Association. And it was incredibly demoralizing and it felt like a gut punch to see the early endorsement uh for uh, for hillary clinton um i mean i think my recollection is that nea endorsed in either september or october it was was way early yeah and aft endorsed even before that i think Mm -hmm. it was like june or july or something Mm -hmm. like that um and you know i i think that regardless of, and I think AFT learned this lesson really well. Um, to at least extent. from a messaging standpoint. Yeah. yeah. At least from a messaging standpoint, I, I, I don't know as much on the actual internal processes and substance of it, but you know, there is at least a show of a very deliberate, you know, mm-hmm, process. Um, process of member a consultation, you know, there was, it seemed like they, um, at least superficially, Mm-hmm. learn their lesson from the, you know, the debacle in 2016, because I think that what unions realized is, um, one, I think that there's a degree to which the kind of realpolitik that union leadership kind of play with Democratic power brokers mm-hmm. doesn't Democratic party the, power brokers specifically. Yeah. Yeah. Democratic party power brokers, um, just doesn't actually line up, I think, with what the rank and file thinks or wants. Um, for better or for and, worse, by the yeah. way, I mean they might be making right. good decisions, but I mean, yeah. but 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 if people who are, I don't mean to cut you off, but like if people mm-hmm. feel like they're frozen out of that process, and they can be convinced that those leaders who might be making good decisions on their behalf, who knows, but they can be conv- if they're if they're alienated from the decisions that are being made, and they can be convinced that the decisions that are being made are not in their interests, how would you respond? How would they, if right. you were in that position, you know what I mean? Yeah. And I think that that ultimately, um, I think that there are some instances, in fact, just looking at 2016, there are definitely instances in which um, unions, I'm thinking particularly of some building trades unions, I mean, Hillary Clinton was not a good choice, but she was a better choice than Donald Trump. Yeah. And I think that they chose her over, I would wager that there are at least some building trades unions where if not a majority, a very close, you know, to majority of members voted for Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. And so there are instances in which you do have union leadership making more progressive decisions than the rank and file might actually make. But at the same time, like you said, whether for better or for worse, they're making decisions that don't actually reflect the rank and files, you know, overall opinion. Mm-hmm. It's easy for that rank and file to become alienated from what's actually happening. Right. And, you know, I think that more than anything, what unions need to realize is that an endorsement process needs to have buy-in. It needs to have legitimacy. People need to feel at the end of the process that, um, you know, that they're, that it was a fair process, it was a transparent process, and they can live with the results. To a reasonable I, degree yeah. and extent. Yeah. 
And I do think that, you know, from speaking as a person that's, you know, politically on the left, I do think that for, you know, radicals within the labor movement, I personally think that the most important thing from an institutional perspective is that you have buy-in, that members feel like the process was fair, that they feel like there's procedural justice. From a left perspective, I think that it's really important to have actual member votes because what it does is even if it's not going to go your way, and I think that that's, there's a danger in thinking that the rank and file is going to make the decision that you know the left wants them to make and that they're all, in the case of the 2020 election, they're all actually secretly for Bernie yeah. and the leadership is making other decisions. I don't think that's so much the point that we're going to get better decisions if the rank and file calls the shots. I think what the point is, is it creates a space to actually have a deliberate political discussion. Right. Which and we do not have. And, 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 and that legitimate to like these kinds of discussions that actually are inclusive and that are not alienating of, of, of membership are fundamental like they fundamentally makes unions stronger because when you're having this kind of like internal debate and discussion then you have the ability to to essentially say well i can actually stand behind this decision even if i don't agree with it right because the process that we all agree to as a group um played out and we gave it a best shot and we lost you know i i, I can get, i can get with that in right. a lot I mean, of senses, that, unless the outcome's just extremely bad. Right. I mean, there, there are certain red lines that, you know, whether or not the process was right, that mm -hmm. you just, you can't live with the outcome. But I think that generally speaking, one of the things of, you know, that being in the labor movement teaches you or being on the political left, depending on or what, both at the stripe same time. of the political left. Yeah, or, 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 or both, both at the same, same time, specifically yeah. because of the, uh, the sort of like way that, these things do play out i mean like like one of the sort of core I'm, I'm sorry you have yeah, we were making a point i'm being rude but but the, the yeah. sort of like like a lot of the sort of like values especially of the like you know socialist marxist left is uh, a worker oriented approach right? right these things are overlapping but go ahead right and i think that you know one of the things that being on the political left and being in the labor movement te uh, teaches you is that you know you you have unity in setting a collective direction Mm -hmm. And you might not always agree with the exact shape of that direction, but ultimately we do have to have a level of political discipline because whether you're on the left, whether you're in the labor movement or whether, you, you know, you've got a foot in both worlds, the odds are not on our side. And so there really is an importance to have, you know, having that level of political discipline, whether it's, you know, in a contract campaign or if it's, you know, in left organizing. Mm -hmm. And that's not even to say that you can like find ways to like build power within these kinds of institutions. That's the whole point, right? Right. And, and, and I don't know. Like, uh, th th I could also see, like, I'm I'm viewing in my mind these sort of like ideas of like people thinking like, well, uh, we let's just set up the perfect process, and whatever co outcome comes from that is good. No, you you definitely do want to have. You want to set the terms for the discussion that happened on an inclusive and, and sort of like at least, you know, moderately broad level. You don't want to like have to make it, you know, up twinkles or whatever. Um, but but then you also so you set the ground rules and then you fight for the thing that you want. And you, you, you like that's just how this has to play out. There's no other way that 
that could sort of like make these organizations either both more legitimate and stronger. And they're, they're those things that come, you know, together in that kind of a process, mm-hmm. which I don't think yeah. plays out, it played out in uh, definitely not in 2016. Right. And I think that, you know, I think that you raise or at least kind of uh, hinted toward it. I think what's an important point is that um, there's the, the importance of the process um, is building collective power, building collective purpose mm-hmm. and, you know, um, common struggle. I mean, that's how you build power. That's how you build collective purpose is a common fight, a mm-hmm. common enemy. And I think that there is a real danger um, either in too overly prescriptive uh, a view of what that, you know, what that fight looks like, of mm-hmm. what the, you know, the steps to get to that end goal of, you know, collective power, collective purpose. There's a danger in being too overly prescriptive. And then I think that, you know, if you're just talking about process and procedure in general and the more, you know, like voting, I mean, that's head ass theory. I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you, you and I have both had the experiences of the people that think you can design a perfect process, whether it's bylaws or whatever the shit it is, that completely abstracted from reasonable things that people do. That or even unreasonable things. Yeah. Or unreasonable things, like abstracted from actual things that people do, just this perfect, you know, process on paper that is totally unworkable, mm-hmm. doesn't actually meet, you know, the reality of the situation. Um, and they, they somehow trust it. it's magically going to deliver the outcome they want. Yeah, that's not how of, things work. That's, that's almost like that. That's almost an entirely and, and I don't mean to like be mean to people or whatever, but that's almost like an entirely sort of like um, it's like it's an academic form of thinking. It's almost it almost kind of like comes to mind as sort of like the kind of uh, like class that would be in the sort of like academic field, not to not to be anti-intellectual or whatever, but 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 that that kind of line of thinking that doesn't that that, that sort of like lo- like 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 frames legitimacy on process rather than on building power, I suppose. Uh, I don't know. There, there's something kind of funny to me. It, it, I'm a big. I'm, I'm in a professional wrestling, right? And like, I always love it when you know you have the the you know the bad guy who like you know sneaks and has brass knuckles in his pants and he punches the other guy or whatever. And then you know he puts him away or he throws him away. And then the other guy starts complaining and he still loses. You know, he still lost. Right. <laughs> you know, well, it's building power and it's 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 getting wins. Yeah. I think that, you know, the, I think that there, and I, I'm going to crib from a certain chairman. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I mean, where does process come from? Uh-huh. I mean, it doesn't fall, fall from the sky. The sky. It's rooted in actual social practice uh-huh. and people in human interactions, um, which are not necessarily going to be perfect. They're by, I mean, look at the, the society we live in mm-hmm. social practice is going to be imperfect no matter how you do it <laughs> and you can't just hand the correct one and expect it to work that's uh-huh. just not how people work i think that you know i think that there's also an element i i like the i like the example of the you know wrestler with the brass knuckles because i think that there is a degree to which you know i'm gonna be a little bit you know tongue-in-cheek and call you know there, there are a lot of people that are rules nerds. Mm-hmm. They think that there should be different rules, but they still, you know, have they want this the rules underlying, to be good. Yeah. They want the rules to be good and think that if the rules were just a little bit better, that it would deliver the right outcomes. Right. I mean, it's 
socialist technocrats mm -hmm. that basically have the same view of society that I think most, you know, like people that just like free base the West Wing <laughs> years and just like completely warp their brain. Uh -huh. Like they, they share the same view of society. They just want the rules to be different. Yeah, they want the rules to reflect them. And yeah, on their side. and they think that if you have good people doing good things in society with slightly better rules, then it'll always work out in the end. Right. And there's no actual view of power and, you know, the realities of how society functions, you know, they just think that if you switch a couple of roles, then ta-da, socialism. Yeah, boom. I and mean, that's it's, just not it's how totally it works. abstracted from the real world. Yeah, it's just not how it works, you know. And <laughs> I, yeah, I, like I, I can't like help but like think of like when, like like when like the NFL will make like a different rule change for how a catch is defined or something like that, you know. <laughs> like right. just like 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 just changing something small enough, and you know, now the now now the good team will win the other thing. Well, and you know, I and think that I'm yeah. sorry. That could and that could only be sort of like, like hypothetically decided, like in the in rear view. You know what I mean? You were making yeah. a point. I'm sorry. Yeah, you know, bringing up sports rules is kind of a, a an interesting way to. I don't know. I've I've always felt an affinity for um, you know, for the players that have kind of like a throw a sneaky elbow behind the play that the refs yeah. don't catch. Um, yeah. and I I think that that's. I think that that's something that organizing and labor teaches you. And I mm -hmm. think that if you take labor organizing seriously mm -hmm. and, you know, are actually a serious person about it, you realize that rules, you, rules don't apply. I mean, We're, if you follow the rules in labor organizing, you are going to lose. Right. Uh, who made those rules and right. who do, whose values do they reflect? Right. I mean, if you follow the rules in labor organizing, I guarantee you, you will lose every single campaign mm -hmm. if you follow the actual letter of the law and respect the rules and respect the process. Mm -hmm. I mean, trust there the is process. remember that yeah, 20, trust the process. Remember, yeah, remember yeah, that you trust from the DSA yeah. con convention? In, uh, was yeah. it twenty? Uh, oh my god, that was twenty seventeen. Yeah, you know, one of my first you know formative kind of experiences with that was a labor organizer that was working with us. Um, uh, when we were organizing back in uh, twenty fifteen um, at University of Missouri pointed out that, you know, like when he used to work hospital campaigns, um, employers, you know, in under the National Labor Relations Act, they're required to hand over a list of workers, um, hand over a list of workers in a proposed bargaining unit prior to an election. It's called an Excelsior list. Mm -hmm. No union organizer fucking trusts those because what they're going to get is a bullshit list that is going to be either inflated or it's going to be missing people. It's going to have, you know, incomplete data, whatever. Mm -hmm. And you get it so late in the process that if you're waiting for that, then you're already 10 steps behind. Right. And so, and the thing is, if you're talking about, you know, a potential bargaining unit of like 1500 people, you can't wait to get that list, which is going to come out at best a month before the election to organize start contacting all people. people. Yeah. Yeah. So literally, and this is not uncommon, labor organizers like they're going to dumpster dive after HR takes out the shredded payroll records and literally tape together a list because <laughs> what the hell else are you going to do? Mm -hmm. I mean, you've got to get a list somehow and you're not going to get it from the employer. Right. So the rules don't work. And so you just 
figure it out. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, or even, yeah, that's one way to do it. And I like that. I mean, in, 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 you know, in a perfect world, I guess you could be able to have those lists kind of organized on the front end, but I mean, it doesn't always, it's not that clean, right? Right. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, realistically, I think that labor law is a really instructive, um, instructive in learning how to, how to look at rules and mm -hmm. laws and how they exist right now, because, and re really the relationship between power and laws, because mm -hmm. if you look at any aspect of labor law, it is very clear who it is designed to benefit. It mm -hmm. is designed to stop worker organizing. Right. That's a reality. That's the point. Yeah. I mean, it's not, it's not there for the protection of workers. If it was originally intended to under the NLRA in the, you know, subsequent, uh, gosh, we're coming up on what, 85 years or so since the passage of the NLRA, it's been pretty much gutted yeah. of anything that actually gives workers power. Right. If you hold the rules up from, you know, 1937 19, you know, or whatever, and you compare them to the exact same rules that we have now, they were just fundamentally different. They just changed. They kept sort of like some of the initial language or whatever, but they have like asterisks and stars and workarounds and all these yeah. other footnotes and those other BS. Yeah, I mean, you know, I one of the one of the earliest pieces I wrote for Strike Wave, which you know, I for for all the listeners, I encourage you to check out uh, www.thestrikewave.com. Mm -hmm. Fantastic, but one of the earliest pieces I wrote for Strike Wave was um, actually kind of a rundown of um, you know the the original intent behind the National Labor Relations Act, and then also the employer counteroffensive with Taft Hartley in 1946, mm -hmm. and realistically. The reason that labor law is bluntly as fucked as it is right now is because of Taft-Hartley. And the reason Taft-Hartley came about is because you have all of these returning GIs from, you know, World War II uh, that are either leaving Europe or, you know, coming back from the Pacific that are expecting decent paying jobs. Right. You have five years of a, you know, wartime wage freeze and a no strike pledge on the you know, on the part of labor mm -hmm. and they got, then, they got a lot for that though. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, you suddenly have a massive strike wave, you know, as right. a percentage of the workforce, the biggest strike wave in American history at, at the end of the war, because the GIs also expected, you know, I got my ass shot off in, you know, battle of the bulge. I deserve a decent job. Yeah. And, you know, you've got GIs coming back. They expect decent jobs. You have lifting of, you know, the wartime uh, no strike pledge. And it scared the crap out of Congress. It scared the crap out of the government. And so they immediately passed Taft-Hartley to kneecap organized yeah. labor. And, and, you know, it's funny about that, too. And, and, and this might be sort of it might be controversial, maybe not. Uh, not necessarily about the, the, the laws that you just outlined, but about the people. The, the workers that had gone to uh, the Second World War, you know, Japan or in, 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 in Europe or whatever, um, I imagine that organizing people like that who had been a part of sort of like military discipline, and I'm not making necessarily a value judgment here, they are sort of like the way that the that military operates and... Uh, they're basically uh, they they understand that to a to a degree what 
you know, working in concert and following kind of a orders sort of thing. You know, like they have an understanding of hierarchy that sort of doesn't exist now. Does that make yeah. sense? And like not to, to like venerate it or anything, the, that, that sort of approach, but that definitely is a sort of material different thing that that these folks had to contend with and that these folks knew how to how to navigate or that they were used to at least dealing with, right? And so you could have a much stronger and I'm not advocating for anything by this, by the way. Yeah. But 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 I guess you could sort of like that that is a different organizing situation than when you have an entire well not entire but when you have a largely um a largely a labor movement of people who don't who've not been in those kind of perspectives and, and and not had those experiences yeah you know i think that and i i'm i'm going to use the example of uh of my grandfather who is a news guild activist uh for his entire you know working life or at least his post-military working life. Mm -hmm. uh, it was actually a shop steward at the Honolulu um, or the Hawaii News Guild uh, during, um, I think it was 1964, the Honolulu, pretty much all of the English language newspapers in uh, Hawaii went on strike, um, supported by the Longshore Workers Union. Um, what are you? you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you know, his experience, he actually, he enlisted in the Marine Corps uh, in the 1930s, uh, prior to the beginning of the war. And it was because he was a depression orphan. He worked in the Civilian Conservation Corps, and it was a way to get job training. He mm -hmm. wanted to work in radio, and that was a way to get the necessary training uh, that, you know, was actually accessible to someone that had no financial support of any kind or mm -hmm. anything like that. And he was, um, you know, he spent time in the Pacific and was actually in the Pacific when the war started and um, spent time in a pretty much spent the entire war in a Japanese POW camp Ugh. and was also his entire life, a lifelong socialist. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I think that thinking about how he would connect his life experiences, which were not that unusual, I think, for people of that generation, both the hardship of, I think, the depression that required that level of social solidarity, um, that realistically that was the only way to survive mm -hmm. was pulling together. Um, and then, you know, government kind of mirrored that effort with the New Deal, um, providing basically the, the things that people couldn't provide for one another. Mm -hmm. um, and then also, I think, you know, his experience in the military, certainly, especially, you know, in a combat zone where you, you have to rely on the people around you. You, you can't there there I think that there's a degree of understanding of the principles of like collective yeah. life atomization that, yeah. is not a luxury that you can afford in that kind of a situation right. and we are a very atomized society right. at this point yeah I mean the reality of like a Japanese POW camp in the Philippines was that I think I can't remember the exact death rates but I think 30 percent of POWs died um, because of you know, disease, malnourishment, et cetera, you cannot survive on your own under those conditions. Right. And I think that, yeah, like you've said, there's a level of atomization, especially pushed by, you know, the intensification of capitalism that, mm -hmm. you know, you are a brand, you are an individual, you are, right. you know, this Randian and I, bullshit. Right. And it's, it's crap. I mean, realistically, people need to understand that we are, we benefit from collective life and social solidarity. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think that 
you have a lot of people on the left that haven't quite um, that either embrace the idea of like individualism as the center of left politics. Right. Um, I'm thinking of particular tendencies within the left. Um, sure, sure, and sure. then you, yeah. And then you have people that just haven't really, you know, shed that yet, which is understandable. It's those great. are the people you can work with potentially. Yeah. yeah. I think that, you know, the reality is that I think now more than ever as, you know, the conditions of capitalism intensify as, you know, society gets hollowed out, we realize that we need each other in a way that we simply, especially right now during a pandemic, mm -hmm. we realize that we need each other in a way that I don't think that people viscerally felt until recently. Yeah, I've been um, saying this myself for, for a bit to give an example on that. Um, so, so I... <sighs> I think like I went out to the grocery yesterday in a couple of different stores to pick up some necessities for living, I suppose you could say, and some beer, which some would argue is a necessity for living. I would. No. Um, but, uh, you know, I went with a mask and with gloves on because of so. And, 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 I, and I think about this, like like if I, if I get COVID-19, the coronavirus, whatever you want to call it. Like, statistically speaking, like, I'm at risk, but I'm probably going to be okay, right? Mm -hmm. But if I have it, and I'm not showing symptoms, and I'm not wearing my gloves, and if I'm not wearing my mask or whatever, I could potentially give it to someone else. Mm -hmm. And th 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 there were a lot of people wearing that stuff at the store the other day, you know, and a lot of people giving that distance, like you mentioned earlier. And that is a sort of expression whether conscious or not, of people looking out for one another. And that's, that's, uh, that's actually kind of a really beautiful thing. Oh, yeah, I agree. And, you know, it actually brings me back to um, I was on a panel. Um, well, not on a panel. I, was, I attended a, a panel uh, run by Penn State's Labor School, uh, mm -hmm. which does really good uh, worker education and outreach work in Pennsylvania. And they actually had a panel of frontline workers, you know, grocery, uh, social services, healthcare, et cetera, in Pennsylvania for them to just tell people what it was like to be on the front lines uh, during during a pandemic. And they were all union members representing a bunch of unions. And I remember mm -hmm. there was a, a licensed, um, yeah, an LPN that was uh, worked at a long-term care facility and they didn't have adequate protective equipment not not even close like they don't have masks they don't have gloves anything like that and horror show yeah i mean and her concern at no point was her concern my safety which would be totally reasonable if that was her concern right yeah i'm her, definitely yeah. am concerned about my safety for yeah. sure and i'm sure yeah right but but for her you know as a lpn at a long-term you know care facility her concern was the people that live here are already quarantined right they're going to be okay i am the thing that is potentially i am the person that is going to get them sick if anything gets them sick yeah. and i want this protective equipment not for myself i want to keep them safe yeah and, and that's an, in, it's a, you cannot argue against that right. if you if you want to not look like a complete and utter Cool. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, just take a look at Washington State when it got into, you know, a, uh, in a into a nursing home. I mean, it just ravaged mm -hmm. because it's an, it's a it's a contained population that is 
statistically in a high risk group. Mm-hmm. I mean, and that I think little moments like that, whether it's something as simple as just wearing a mask and gloves to the grocery store, or whether it's, you know, demanding that I want protective equipment because I don't want to get my patient sick. Right. I think that little moments like that where people are making conscious decisions, not just out of, you know, personal concern, but out of concern for the people around them. There's something happening, I think, that is totally different than anything that I recall seeing in my lifetime. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, it's just it's happening everywhere. That's the thing is, if you think of the scale of this, there is no pandemic in history that has moved as quickly as this one, because, of course, we're more interconnected than at any right. other point in history. The Spanish flu certainly was a global pandemic, but it spread more slowly than this. Mm-hmm. This is one that became within the span of months, went from something in one Chinese province to a global pandemic. We are all going through this at the same time. Every single person, damn near every single person on the planet is going through this at the same time. And I think that people are responding in the same ways globally. Mm-hmm. I think the thing that I, you know, as a, as a leftist, the thing that we need to think about is that social solidarity is a beautiful thing, but it doesn't necessarily lead toward progressive outcomes. Solidarity doesn't necessarily lead toward progressive politics. It Mm -hmm. doesn't lead toward socialist politics, because if you remember Trump's state of the union, um, he, he dropped the word solidarity in there. Yeah. And he meant it. It was like it's Steve Bannon bullshit. The solidarity, <laughs> solidarity of the nation state. Solidarity fascism, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. I mean that that's the thing. Is a solid who is your solidarity with? Yeah. And that's like I think white where people we need solidarity. To, yeah. That's a problem. Right. Yeah. Who is your solidarity with? And I think that we have a moment where we can direct this in an incredible direction. Yeah. It's an and I think that yeah. And we 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 can't let it go by because if we don't do it, the right's gonna do it. Yeah. Yeah, it's in it, so that makes it an imperative. Yeah. So it goes. I mean, from, we have no it, option but to try to direct it in the best possible way. Right. I mean, I mean, I guess you could always argue that any failure to capitalize on, uh, I mean, any opportunity to capitalize on is an imperative in a certain sense if you want to actually obtain the goals that you want to push for, um, which in this case is a you know a much more equal material world. Um, one more thing, actually. Uh, and I'm just going to keep bringing it up on sports because that's just where my brain's at today for some reason. But uh, the, uh, the the coach, I love this. So I live in New Orleans, and, uh, right outside New Orleans in Louisiana, and I went to LSU. Uh, and <laughs> part of the governor's plan, John Bell Edwards, who's like a like a corporate Democrat or whatever, but he's been decent on this this COVID response for. But but one of the things that he brought in at the early parts of this whole thing was the profe- the co- the football coach from Louisiana State Uni- University, this guy named Ed Orgeron, who talks in his gravelly voice, you know, go Tigers, you know, that kind of thing. And he'd like just cut up like a, we need a game plan for fighting COVID-19. And he'd just start like doing this whole thing, like wash your hands and all that other stuff. And like... Uh, that is a framing of we are on the entire like on the same team and i really do like in a certain sense first off i generally appreciate coach o because he's hilarious and he just brought back Mm -hmm. the national title to to lsu last year and perhaps the last (laughs) you know the last one yeah uh last college football championship ever but then also like the idea of framing people as 
like 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 everybody as being on the same team and that's a i mean it, it sounds cheesy or whatever probably but i think it's kind of a beautiful thing well and i think you know the important thing is that it's a way of emphasizing these values that i think can be directed in a progressive direction that people can connect to mm-hmm. i mean everyone can connect to that I mean, it's funny that you mentioned that. I'm I'm shocked that Penn State hasn't cut something similar to that. You know, who yeah. would be doing? Not, it? I, I don't. I don't necessarily. I live in State College, but I don't want to be on Penn State's team. So yeah, but I'm yeah, surprised maybe, that they haven't maybe done Penn that. Penn State can't do that because of the Paterno business. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if. Well, if I can try. tell you right now that Penn State tries to keep their head down. Yeah, so. right now, yeah. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, you know, I, I think that that's a really relatable thing. And, you know, I think that, um, you know, it's, it really is who is your team. I mean, that's, that's another way of putting, you know, putting the values of solidarity. Who, who is your teammate? Who is, who is in this with you together? I mean, I, I'm always going to refer to the any given Sunday Al Pacino, um, you know, the game baby. Yeah. Yeah, the game of inches, because I, I swear to God, like before any election, before any like pivotal moment, I, I watch that. I have a story but that's about what that, it is. Way. Yeah, What's that? I have a story about that, by the way. Oh, I want to hear that. When I, I mean, it's, uh, uh, go go ahead. Ahead. When I was in high school, my high school football coach literally just lifted that speech word for word and gave it as a pregame speech. <laughs> That is that is fantastic. It's just amazing. I admire that. Yeah, I admire that. But you know, I, I it really is. It's a question of: Do you value the person next to you? Are you willing to yeah. struggle with the person next to you? And do you share a common goal? It's almost like the the, the Sanders thing of the: Will you fight for somebody you don't know? You know what I mean? Absolutely. And and I mean, and, it's trying to define who who is your solidarity with. Yeah. And, and, and that solidarity needs to be as broad as possible. Because if you're talking about solidar- solidarity, that sounds delicious. Um, if you talk about solidarity, <laughs> like in a limited sense, like solidarity amongst billionaires, for example, which is what probably what Trump meant. Uh, I, I don't know the context of it, or it could have been used, deployed in a bunch of different ways, right? right. Um, but I mean, if you have solidarity amongst billionaires against working people, guess what? You have an army against the working class. Yeah. And the thing is, we all know that capital has plenty of solidarity. Oh, yeah, totally. They work in lockstep. And, I, you know, any unionist knows that the boss absolutely has, you know, employers have solidarity together. They're not going to sell each other out. They right. work together incredibly effectively to coordinate against, you know, the interests of workers. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the only thing that we have to fight back against that is solidarity. And the wider we define that and you know, in my perspective, defining it in, you know, class terms, the more power we have. Right. If we define it in narrow ways, we're just limiting our own potential power too, Mm -hmm. aside from, you know, cutting people out that are, we should have solidarity with. Correct. Solidarity for everyone. Yep. Absolutely. Totally. I think it's a good way to leave it uh, on that. Hopefully this, uh, well, at least on my end, wasn't too, too head ass theory. Um, I mean, uh, COVID-19 ramblings, yeah, that's fine. My brain, my brain, I have quarantine brain. Um, but anyways, anything you want to shout out? Uh, Strike Wave, your Twitter? Yeah. Um, 
just uh, you know, folks should check out uh, StrikeWave. Uh, it's thestrikewave.com. Uh, check out our newsletter, and then you can follow us on Twitter at mm -hmm. StrikeWave. Um, and then also my Twitter handle is at uh, the House Red. T H E H O U S E R E D. Mm -hmm. um, I apologize in advance for my takes. Yeah, that's to say the least. Um, anyway, <laughs> the, um, I'm kidding. The um, yeah, check out Strike Wave, and also we're possibly going to be in, in launching a new project uh, going forward, uh, new podcasts. Yeah, stay tuned Very for that. Excited perhaps. about that. Yeah. Um, next couple of weeks. So um, there's Phoebe again telling me that your show is going too long. That's my my producer Phoebe, the cat. <laughs> <laughs> you hear? <her>? Yes. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. I'm wrapping it up. You can listen to Good Morning Comrade on WHIVLP New Orleans on Tuesdays. You could also get more information about our show on uh, goodmorningcomrade.com, uh, whivfm.org slash good hyphen morning hyphen comrade. You could also uh, give to our Patreon. Uh, we, we're trying to get to 20 uh, patrons. Uh, good morning. Uh, sorry, patreon.com forward slash good morning comrade. Uh, so, Connor, thank you so much for joining us. Definitely come back like anytime. Uh, it's, you know, it's, it's good time. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Absolutely. Uh, all right, everybody. Love you. Bye.